All right, the red button is on, so I, and so is the thing. So I assume we're going, and Sergio's over in Israel checking things out, so we're in good shape there. And let's see, we've got today Psalm 119, verse 137. We got no James today. He flew in, and he's he said he's going to be tired when he arrives, so... Oh, I'm tired and I'm here. I don't know why he gets a pass. Okay. Sade. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding. I shall live. All right, let's see here. We have, um, I think just one prayer request came in. Um, no, my friend Paul and Amy, uh, she did not get her CAT scan last week, or yesterday, she was supposed to, so it's going to be next week, and he's still having some trouble with the neighbors, like the Hatfield-McCoy type of thing, so we want to keep them in prayer, and then Jack Colvin, Jack and Beth who sit in the back, he's in the hospital, he had to go to the ER today, and uh, he seemed fine, she sent a picture of him and he was smiling, but uh, he's probably going to be admitted uh, for a few days, we'll find that out. And she has not emailed me yet, but we'll find out. But we'll have Jack in prayer as well. Well, let's do that right now. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for these and for any other people that are having difficulties or trials. We pray for those that are uh, facing life decisions that they need to make that uh, may affect their income, may affect their uh, outlook on how they can do things in the future and what they need to do. We certainly pray for anybody that has financial difficulties or, or physical pains or trials with their wife or children. Lord, you know each and every person that is watching this or that will watch it. And uh, so search them out, Lord. Search each of us out and uh, look into us and find out what we need from your hand. And then we ask for it to be given so that we can turn around and thank you and praise you for those things. And should you withhold your hand of healing or blessing for whatever reason, help us to understand the reason why so that we can continue to praise you even through the difficulties. We need to do that because we're your children, we're your servants, and uh, you are worthy of every single bit of praise that we can give you. So may we be uh, blessed with the ability at least to do that much. We pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see here. We have um, uh, nine, so that means today must be the sixth. Is that right? Okay, good. All right. You read 142, said your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Yes. Jeremiah 31. Okay, Jeremiah 31 3, an yeah. everlasting love. So that kind of goes along with that. Nice, nice. Uh, let's see here. May 6, he proved that a good education is not dependent upon lavish surroundings. I was talking to somebody today about uh, some life choices that they have to make and. Uh, uh, he said, well, I want to do this for my child, and I want to do this for this, and I this and that. And I said, listen, you know, the rest of the world, and pretty much the whole world, even to this day, doesn't look at things like that. 
we live in a bubble in America. We live in a land where we have so much prosperity that we expect that things will be that way and that if it's not that way, that it's not correct. But the fact is, for the most part of the world, they don't have the things that we just assume are normal. So uh, we shouldn't be looking at the things that we have and saying, well, I, you know, I don't understand why that's not continuing. Most people have never had that to start with. So we need to remember that, that uh, uh, it says here, he proved that a good education isn't dependent upon lavish surroundings. We think, oh, I got to go to a college that's got all the frills and bells and whistles. Who cares? You know, I mean, people didn't always have colleges like that. It's just, we're just so blessed here that we take things and we get them out of perspective. And we're doing that with this commentary right now by saying, you know, oh, how difficult it was for him then and comparing it to what we have now. But what we have now is still so much more than most people of the world have. So we should feel blessed that we have it, but we shouldn't assume that it's the way that it is or should be. Anyway, William Tennant was born in 1673, educated at the University of Edinburgh, where he received a Master of Arts degree and eventually was ordained into the Anglican Church in Ireland. He had an independent streak and tended not to conform to the Anglican Church. I wouldn't wear one of those dumb hats, that's for sure. <laughs> Instead of leading his own parish as a typical clergyman, he served as a chaplain to an Irish nobleman. In 1718, he and his family emigrated from Ireland to Philadelphia. Shortly after his arrival, he petitioned the Presbyterian Synod to allow him to become a Presbyterian minister. He renounced the Anglican Church because of disagreements over church government and the Arminian tendencies of its doctrines. The petition, his petition was accepted, and he was ordained as a Presbyterian minister without having to undergo further education. He first took pastorates in New York, and then in 1726 went to Neshaminy, Pennsylvania, to lead a church. He remained there for the rest of his life, Shortly after his arrival, he began informing, or sorry, informally tutoring his sons and some other young men who were preparing to enter the Presbyterian ministry. By 1735, he formalized his efforts by building a simple log building on his property to serve as his school. It came to be known as Log College. His motivations for building the college was to increase the supply of Presbyterian ministers in America. Until this point, candidates for the ministry had to go to New England or abroad for training. Tennant was known for his excellent teaching skills, deep faith, and godly lifestyle. Tennant's three younger sons, William, John, and Charles, oh, I know where this is going, were trained at Log College and went on to become Presbyterian ministers and leaders of the Great Awakening. The college was not without its detractors. In fact, the name Log College was in itself a derogatory and derisive reference. Many within the Presbyterian Church were skeptical of the college's ability to provide adequate training because of its humble and remote surroundings. Additional tension came from the fact that those who were supporters of the college also tended to be more aggressively evangelistic. They embraced the great evangelist George Whitfield, or Whitefield, however you say that, and his Whitfield, okay, and his methods, which were controversial at the time. Although many demeaned the simplicity of the log college, George Whitfield admired it. He wrote in his journal, The place wherein the young men study now is in contempt called the college. It is a log house, about twenty foot long and near as many broad. And to me it seemed to resemble the church of the old prophets for their habitations were mean, and they sought not great things for themselves, is plain. 
all that we can say of most of our universities is that they are glorious without. From the despised place, seven or eight worthy ministers of Jesus have lately been sent forth. More are almost ready to be sent, and the foundation is now laying the instruction of many others. The log college closed as an old age, I'm sorry, closed as old age and poor health claimed William Tennant. He died on 6 May 1746. That fall, supporters of the Log College joined together with the Presbyterians' dissolution with Yale's recent expulsion of David Brainerd to form the College of New Jersey. Four of the initial trustees were graduates of the Log College, including two of Tenet's sons. Another Log College graduate and an initial trustee was Samuel Finley, who later became the fifth president of the college. Today, we know the College of New Jersey, the successor I'm sorry, the successor of Log College as Princeton University. Princeton University was born in a log cabin. William Tennant's deep faith and his commitment to teaching others created a far-reaching legacy for the kingdom of Christ. Do you ever think about the legacy you will leave? Will it further God's kingdom? And they cite Zechariah 4.10. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Good stuff there. And, you know, as all things happen, Princeton was a great, great university, and it's now a bastion of wickedness, just like all of them are. But that's what happens. Things go up, and they start going steady for a while, and then down they go. And then you have to contend for the faith somewhere else. Very sad to see. I think they're, uh, if I'm right, Princeton's uh, motto, can anybody tell me what it is? Think it is lights and perfections. Urim betumim, lights and perfections. So uh, you were required back then to learn Hebrew and uh, you know know the biblical languages before you were sent out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now they probably don't teach those unless you just you know I I don't know I don't want to go too far with that, but uh, there's very little that good that comes out of any of the Ivy League colleges. Um, let's see here. We are in. What was it for Colossians 7? Yeah. <laughs> Ephesians 2. Oh, Ephesians 2. Okay. I knew we were somewhere around there. Ephesians 2. Yes, 1 Thessalonians 5. It's Oh, well, I'll tell you what we were talking about back there. We were having a conversation about um, uh, Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, where he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put under his own authority, et cetera, et cetera, right? In other words, don't go speculating about the days of the rapture. Don't go speculating about those. And people say, well, that was just Jesus giving a general uh, uh, talk about, uh, you know, the general time in which he lived, but it doesn't really pertain today. And uh, that's incorrect. Paul, whose letters are prescriptive, says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So just as Jesus said, Paul reiterates that we're not to be speculating on the rapture. It's not good theology. It's not good practice. It harms Christians when our speculations are wrong. So the best thing to do is to just wait. Jesus said to go and do something. And that's what we're doing until he comes. It's fine to talk about the rapture. It's fine to talk about all of the doctrines of scripture, but it's not fine to speculate on the day of the rapture because when it doesn't happen, and invariably it will not, 
when somebody picks that particular day, then it just harms everybody. So just, it's something we should not do. Anyway, we're in Ephesians, not 1 Thessalonians 5. So, but uh, that's what we were talking about back there is, you know, why it's just not good to do that. Anyway, um, let's see here. I've got to get there. Ephesians, and I've got to get a marker in there. Okay, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the beginning of the chapter, just because it's only seven verses before this. And then we'll get into verse 8. No gem today. Oh, I said that already. And you, verse 2, he made alive, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Another theological point the devil is still active and working in the world, okay, among whom also we are all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. We talked about it, but that's the doctrine of um, uh, original sin, inherited sin, etc. We, we were children of wrath by nature, but God who is did I push the button? Yes, I heard something moving. Okay, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's wonderful words. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then here it is, verse 8. Everybody here should know this by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then it stops right there. It goes on in verse 9, but we'll just evaluate those words right now. Did anybody else hear something behind me? You did. Oh, you heard that. It's, it was moving? I don't know. I I don't know. It could be Tom snoring, or it could be that Sergio was doing something, but he, he didn't say anything to me, but you did hear something. Okay, well, anyway. I, okay, well, I'm not going to worry. Oh, it's Sergio. He's he's working on the focus. The focus has not been correct. Thank you, Sergio. I see that. Thank you. Um, let me, that'll just bing again if I don't. Okay, uh, I better tell him. He might not be listening, but wow. Okay, anyway. Uh, all right. I hate to interrupt the class like that. Sorry, but he, I knew something was going on. There we go. Okay. Um, he's probably laughing at us right now. Okay, verse 2-8, the comments on verse 2-8. Uh, in verse 2-5, Paul parenthetically stated, by grace you have been saved. After that, he explained what the resulting actions of that salvation were. Now he returns to that same parenthetical thought to further define what being saved by grace means. He begins with the word, or, in order to show that all of the things which resulted from that salvation are connected to this act of grace. In other words, the entire deal, everything about our salvation, everything is grace. Everything. It is not merited. We were, as we already read, we were dead in trespasses, but he made us alive together with Christ in an act of grace. He raised us up by an act of grace. He made us sit in the heavenlies with Christ by an act of grace. He continues on with, by grace you have been saved. It is a repeat of the parenthesis of verse 5. The words you have been are in the present indicative active. An indicative serves as a sign or indication of something. 
In this case, it serves to mean, this is Charles Ellicott's interpretation of it, ye were saved at first and continue in a state of salvation. It is a done deal. Salvation is eternal, despite what people want to say about once saved, always saved. And it has been through faith. Paul's words, through faith. So you were saved by faith. You were saved, continue to be saved by faith. And it is all by God's grace. Here, he moves from the effect of verse 5, being saved by grace, to the cause of that occurrence, which is faith. Okay? The grace comes from God, while the faith came forth from the object of the grace, meaning the man. We talked about Calvinism last week. I got a couple uh, emails on it this week, people that are in particular churches, and they're asking about that particular doctrine. And I, I don't know if I told them, but I should have just said, go back and last, watch last week's talk, because in last week's talk, we talked about all of those type of things, okay? God makes the offer. God sent his son. He did everything necessary for us to be saved, and then he asks us to simply have faith. That's all he asks of us, okay? The faith is the cause of the action. The grace is the effect of the exercise of that faith. I believe God gives me grace. That's the way it goes. The grace is already there. It's already there potentially for all people because Christ has already been crucified, but it is not grace until it is received. And until it's received, you still are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are still going to be condemned. You have to believe in what Christ did. Further, grace has the article in the Greek. Thus, it is the grace. It is not just any grace, but it is the grace of God which is bestowed upon the believer in Christ and in his work. Now, unlike the Hebrew, there are times where you don't need to translate the article, okay? In the Hebrew, you really should translate it. It's not translated quite often, as you see during the sermons. And there are times where uh, the article isn't necessary when you're talking about a particular uh, person, because it'll say, uh, the person, the him. And we wouldn't do that in English, so there's no, person, no reason to translate that article there. But if you were to be literal, and I always try to be when I give you a, a translation of it during a sermon, that article will be there. And we'll leave that out. But when it comes to the Greek, sometimes you don't need to have an article to understand what is being said. But when it says the grace, it should be translated. And most people will not translate it because it doesn't sound good. But probably, and I don't know this for certain, but if I went to Young's literal uh, translation of the Bible, he probably put it in there. He's very good about putting it in when it will give you a definite understanding of what is necessary to see what is being portrayed or conveyed by Paul. Okay, In this case, it is the grace. It's not just any grace, but the grace of God, which is bestowed upon the believer in Christ and his work. Next, to demonstrate that the grace is truly grace, he says, and that not of yourselves. Okay, if it's of ourselves, then it can't be grace because grace and works are incompatible. You cannot earn grace in any way, shape, or form. And so Paul wants to make sure that the grace is understood as really meaning grace and not just some, you know, funny term. He says, and that out of yourselves. One cannot merit grace. The exercise of faith cannot be said to be a work or deed of merit. And this is where a lot of people have their problems. They do this with... Um, they take Paul's words where he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And they say, well, that's not necessary because that's a work. And so it can't be of grace if it's a work. No, it's not an, a work. It is a affirmation of oath, which Paul says you are to do. You are to confess the Lord with your mouth. And so 
I'm not Paul, and I'm also not God who inspired Paul. So if it says that you, uh, what does it say in Romans 10, 9, and 10? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Then confess the Lord and make that profession of faith. That's what the Bible asks of you. It's not a work. It's simply an acknowledgement, which you would do in any court of law or any other place where you are. But to say, oh, I'm not going to do it because, you know, it's a work is ridiculous at best. People have to profess things all the time, and it's not a work. It's being something that's expected of you. Anyway, same thing with grace. They say that, well, belief is a work, and therefore I don't have to believe. Well, that's ridiculous, okay? That, that people like to get into these, these nitpicky little issues, which are not even, they're not right thinking, much less anything else. So um, uh, where was I? To demonstrate that the grace is truly grace, he says, and that not of yourselves, one cannot merit grace. The exercise of faith, here it is, cannot be said to be a work or deed of merit. Instead, it is a logical, necessary choice which one must make in order to be saved. If you don't believe, you're not going to be saved. If we want to continue to live, we must breathe. It is not a work. It is a necessary requirement of sustaining life. Now, one thing about breathing is that we have two types of breathing. We have involuntary breathing. I, it's not involuntary, though. There's a word for it, where it happens, and it just happens without us thinking of it. What? Reoccurrence. Not reoccurrence. There's a word that, like when your heart beats. What is it? It's, it's called, it's something, it just happens. Okay. What? Uh, well, it, we'll call it automatic. That's not the word I'm thinking of, but there's a medical word where you, your heart just beats, okay? And we just breathe. But breathing can also be stopped by us. We can go and we can hold our breath. That guy that just set the world record, uh, what was it, about three weeks ago, 28 minutes underwater. He didn't breathe for 28 minutes, okay? So breathing is both something that happens. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of that word, and it's not coming out. Anyway, we'll, we'll say that it is. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll think of it at 2 o'clock this morning. But, um, well, no, it's not repetitive. There's a word that, that things just happen. Yeah, anyway, we'll get it later. Okay, I, I, I don't want to have the class turn into disarray because of this. So uh, anyway, when you, when you uh, breathe, it is something that you do. And you can stop breathing, but involuntary, involuntary. Thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for, voluntary and involuntary. Okay, so there are two types of breathing. You have voluntary breathing and you have involuntary breathing. But believe it or not, your heartbeat is also possible to be voluntary as well as involuntary. There was a guy in India that has the ability to actually bring his heart down to a point where it eventually stops. And it'll stop for an extended period of time, and then he can make it start again. Okay, so even your heart can be voluntary. And the point that I'm making about that, just like your eyes, your eyes have voluntary and involuntary actions, okay? The point that I'm making about that is that we try to use terms to say, well, I don't have to do this because that's a work and God said that my salvation is of grace and no it doesn't work that way when you are asked to believe you must believe and there's no way of getting around that and when you are asked to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus you should do that just as you can stop your breathing you should also continue your breathing at a point or you're going to die okay everybody understand that you have a point six first 6 go John ahead 629 John 620 oh yeah this is the work of God that you believe in him and he has That's right, John 6, 29. This is the work of God. Yeah. Okay, he is the one that gave us the ability to believe. We just have to exercise that ability. He gave us the ability to move our arms. He gave us all of these things. 
but I don't have to move my arms. I do move my arms, and if I want to eat, I've got to move my arms, and I've got to move my teeth and everything else, okay? The point being that when the Bible says something, we don't want to play around with it and make games out of it. The Bible says that we believe and we are saved. We don't need to take the Calvinistic uh, approach and say that God regenerates us in order to believe, and then we believe, and then we are saved. That's the whole point that I was trying to get at, and thank you for the words voluntary and involuntary. You get one extra penny point on Saturday. Okay. Um, yes, and you got it. You got it. Uh, okay, so uh, let's see here. Um, when we do what is necessary in order to live, the salvation is bestowed upon us. It is the gift of God. A gift is something which costs nothing. It is free, and it is without strings attached. Okay, my pastor, you know, when I first met the Lord, and I had read the Bible many, many times by the time that this happened, okay? But uh, I, reading the Bible and knowing what the Bible says does not mean that you are able to explain doctrines from the Bible, okay? I had no idea. I just read the Bible many, many times, but I couldn't have told you any of the doctrines of the Bible. And I also could not have told somebody how to come to Christ. It, it just, it's, you have to learn things, okay? And the Bible gives you all of the blueprints, but then it takes you drawing that out and then making a doctrine out of it, okay? And so I wouldn't have known how to tell Hedeko to be a Christian and so I, or my kids. And so I just was trying to be a good person and living by it. And I'd say, well, the Bible says this. And, you know, but I could have spent all day telling them what the Bible says and not knowing the appropriate way to make it simple enough for somebody to understand. And then one day I took Hedeko to the school that my children were at. It was a Christian school, and the principal of the school was also the pastor of the church. And he asked me, he was very direct. He was there to meet us about our kids, because every year you're supposed to meet about your kids. And instead of doing that, he asked me, do you know the Lord Jesus? He couldn't have cared if, if the kids were passing or failing at this point. He was an attack dog about salvation. And so he came to me, he said, do you know the Lord Jesus? And I said, oh, I love the Lord. And without missing a beat, he looked at my wife and he said, do you know the Lord Jesus? And her exact words, has not hit me like husband. That was exactly what she said. And he said, well, can I tell you about Jesus? And she said, yes. And I, he might not have even asked. I think he might have just started talking to her about him. Anyway, um, uh, he, he gave the example. First, he told, you know, the gospel, how you get saved and what it means to be saved. And then he took off his watch and he said now this is a rolex obviously he was kidding but he said if this was a rolex and this is a hundred thousand dollar watch and i give it to you what do you have to do and she said well i just have to take it and she she said i understand that i understand that and he said and that's what you need to do and she says i want to take what jesus has done it was that simple and then I built upon that in later years when talking about Jesus. As I said, well, now, if I have a watch, and it's a very expensive watch, and I say, here, this is for you. It's only a penny. It's a $10,000 watch, and it's, I'm giving it to you for a penny. Is that grace? And everybody says the same thing. Yeah, that's grace. And I say, no, that is not grace. It, I'm charging you something. It is a really good deal, but it is not grace. And when God says this is grace, he means it is grace. And so you stay out of all of the churches if they tell you that you have to do something. If they tell you you need to get baptized. If they tell you anything beyond what the Bible says, you need to not go there because they do not understand grace. Okay? And then after that, I say, now I want you to have this watch. What are you going to do? And I'm going to take my hand out and I'm going to take it. Well, that was Hedeko. She said, I want to receive Jesus. And it took all of about 
three minutes of what I had spent two years sitting there reading the Bible and no, it wasn't two years, it was probably a year and a half at that point, and not being able to clearly explain it. And after that day, I never missed a chance at telling somebody about Jesus because now I know how to do it, right? And you just have to get things in the right order and then it all falls into place. It's like anything else, you just have to learn it. So don't be timid about sharing the gospel, just understand that the gospel is right here and you have to present it to somebody, okay? So anyway, a gift is something which costs nothing. It is free and it is without strings attached, even a penny, okay? Further, it, a gift is a gift. What does that mean? If I give you a gift, what does that mean? Free. But more than that, it's not only free because it's a gift, but what does a gift imply? But beyond that, it's personal, but there's something else about a gift. We have a term, which I can't use because I'll be uh, called a racist or a bigot or something. We have a term called Indian giver. Anybody know what that means? When I was a kid, yeah, it means I'm going to take it back, okay? Indian giver. Yes, okay. All right. And Indians don't take things back. That's just a term that we grew up with, okay? So now somebody's going to complain that I said that. But the point is, a gift is what? It's not just, it's not just free, but it is more than unconditional. What am I getting at? Go beyond that. God won't take it back. That's what I'm looking for. God will not take it back. That is what I'm looking for. It is eternal. If a gift is a gift and he takes it back, then it was never a gift. I don't know how people can understand that and tell you that you can lose your salvation. I do not understand people that tell you you can lose your salvation because a gift is a gift, and it's also a guarantee. It's a pledge. It's all of these other things, but that is exactly what I was looking for. It is something that, uh, read it again, a gift is a gift. It is not something that can be taken back based on another action. When you give something, somebody a gift and it has a condition on it, then it is not a gift. And if something else is a requirement for that at any time during the stream of your life, it was never a gift and it was not of God, okay? If it could be, then it was not a gift from the start. Again, as before, logic dictates that salvation must be an eternal decree of God, which, when faith is exercised, the person is sealed with the Holy Spirit. They are saved and they will keep being saved once and forever. Therefore, that, Paul's word, that and the gift of God are synonymous. The second merely explains the first. It is a gift of God, meaning you didn't earn it. It is a gift of God, meaning that it is yours and meaning that God will not take it back. To understand the verse, more fully, it needs to be noted that both grace and faith are in the feminine. But the word that, anybody heard this? It is in the neuter. Therefore, that is not speaking of only grace or faith. Instead, it is speaking of the entire process of salvation by grace, which is through faith. Thus, faith cannot be considered a work. Okay, I'm stressing on this because, yes, I have had people tell me that faith is a work. And when I hear that kind of stuff, it, it just drives me crazy. And so you have to be able to defend why their thought is incorrect. Okay, I'll read it again so you understand what's going on. Let me go back over here. Um, right here, it starts right here. To understand the verse more fully, it needs to be noted that the word grace and the word faith are in the feminine. 
if you have something that's in the feminine in any any language, then the other part of that sentence needs to be in the feminine for it to correspond. Or there's what is called a gender discord. Okay, it would be like saying, Burke is a really nice guy. I want to go to the movies with her. It doesn't make any sense because Burke is a guy. Okay, so that's called a gender discord. There's something going wrong and we don't violate things in the Bible like that unless there's a particular reason. We had gender discords in the book of Ruth, a lot of them. And it's always been a question as to why they are in the book of Ruth. And there have been many, many people that have uh, wondered why those gender discords are in the book of Ruth over the years. And when I did the sermons on the book of Ruth, I gave my answer as to why. And I'm certain it's correct. Okay? So if you want to know why those gender discords are in the book of Ruth, go watch the book of Ruth sermons, and you'll say, oh, I agree with Charlie. Because I know they're correct. Everything in the Bible is looking at something else. That's called typology. And in the book of Ruth, there are types which are showing pictures of other things. That was a little arrogant of me to say, but I'm certain that they're correct. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm certain that they're correct. Okay, there are other gender discords in the Bible, and there will always be a reason why they are there. Okay, in this case, because those are in the feminine, but the word that is in the neuter, then that cannot be speaking of the word grace, because grace is in the feminine and that is neuter, and it cannot be speaking of the word faith, because that's in the feminine as well. It can't be either of them, so what it is speaking of is the entire clause, which is a neuter clause. Okay, this is the same thing with. When um, Jesus said to um, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And guess what it does? In that statement, and the Catholic Church uses that to justify Peter as the first pope, there's a gender discord there. It doesn't match. And because of that, he's not speaking about Peter at all. He's speaking about what Peter said a sentence before. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's where the match is. And when he said that, um, I tell you that you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. He was speaking of the proclamation of Peter. That's why he called Peter the rock is because of the proclamation he made, not because he's a pope. Everybody got that? That's why that gender discord is there, is to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of Catholicism. All right, there you go with that. So, um, uh, and that just came to mind. So anyway, I may have gotten that a little bit wrong, but that's, that is how it works. Jesus was speaking of the proclamation, not of the man. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, instead, it is speaking of the entire process of salvation by grace, which is through faith. That would be a neuter, a gender neuter, neut, uh, neutral uh, statement, the entire statement, okay? Thus, faith cannot be considered a work. And here's how the verse looks. I'll read it to you. For by grace, feminine, you have been saved through faith, feminine, And that neuter, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The importance of this is seen in the refutation of the doctrine of those who claim that man is regenerated in order to believe, and that man does not possess free will. The argument is ridiculous on the surface, but this is what is taught by some. Instead, the faith is exercised, and the result is being saved by grace, the very thing Paul has been speaking about since Verse 5, the pulpit commentary correctly states the nature of faith. These are their words. It is not that faith is accepted by God in place of works, but because faith indicates that attitude of men towards Christ in which it pleases God to save them, transferring to him, meaning Christ, all their guilt 
imputing to them all his merit. We're giving him our guilt. Christ died for your sins, and he is giving us his righteousness. By grace, you have been saved, meaning that you are declared righteous before God, because nothing unrighteous can enter the presence of God. Okay? So that's it. I'll read it again so you get that. It is not that faith is accepted by God in place of works, but because faith indicates that attitude of men, just like Abraham, think of believing Abraham, towards Christ in which it pleases God to save them, transferring to him all their guilt, imputing to them all his merit. Finally, there is an emphasis on the word gift. Using an article, the Greek says, of gift, uh, I'm sorry, of God, it is the gift. The salvation of God is the gift of God based on a mere act of faith by man. If the faith were a part of the gift, then it wouldn't really be a gift in its truest sense. Go back to Calvinism and regeneration. You're given the faith and then you believe if that's a part of the gift, then it wasn't really a gift. Everybody see that? At best, it could be considered a forced gift. But even that is a contradictory thought. Life application, it's like you think of the pardons. It's a great example. It's a great example. Presidential pardons, okay? I think it was um, uh, Jackson or Johnson, one of these early presidents. I'm, I don't want to give the name because I'm sure that I'm going to get the name wrong. But one of these early presidents um, might have been, even been Jefferson. What, was Jefferson a president? Yes. Yes, okay, okay, third one. Okay, okay. So might have been Jefferson. Anyway, one of these J presidents yes. pardoned somebody, okay? And the person said, I don't want your pardon. Okay, now we've got a problem because the president has the right to pardon anybody but the person doesn't want his pardon. And so guess what? It had to go up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, this pardon is in effect forever, but it is not effective until he receives it. That's the problem with Calvinism as well. You're getting something forced on you that you might not want, which would be crazy, but there are a lot of crazy people in the world. Okay, so there you go. The presidential pardon remains in effect but until the person accepts it, it is not a pardon, okay? It is a potential pardon, all right? Same thing here. Okay, so um, the gift. At best, it could be considered forced gift, but even that is a contradictory thought, life application. Precision of thought is required in order to keep from being duped into bad theology. Please take time to read more commentaries on this verse and make a logical conclusion based on the best evidence provided. Okay, I might have read for this verse, uh, normally when I read a commentary, uh, when I do a commentary, I will look at um, Charles Ellicott. I'll look at Matthew Henry, which is kind of a soapy commentary. He just gives nice thoughts. They're never theologically deep or anything, but Matthew Henry, and then after that is Joseph Benson. After him is uh, uh, Albert Barnes, and then after him is Matthew Poole, and then Jameson Fawcett Brown then John Gill, and then the Bible, uh, the Geneva Bible usually gives one or two words on something. I mean, it's usually kind of pointless, but if they give a couple words, they're usually pretty fun to, to consider. But, and then on the other side, we have the Expositor's Greek Testament. Then we have, um, I'm trying to think of all the people. The uh, next one is Cambridge. After Cambridge comes uh, um, Bengel's Nomen. He's a German guy. And then after him is um, the Pulpit Commentary and then Vincent's Word Studies. for the New Testament commentaries, I will usually read those commentaries on one verse, and then I will make my analysis, okay? 
for the sermons, I will go beyond that. And I will also read Adam Clark and I'll read Kyle and Delich, who are a couple Germans. And then I will also read um, John Lang, who I think is German as well. Anyway, so I add those in because I want the Old Testament sermons to be a little deeper. Okay, but the point is, I read all of those things in order to give you an analysis of this particular verse. Okay, and I am recommending to you that you go and find more analyses and read them because I'm giving you a lump sum of all of their ideas from Charlie Garrett's perspective. And I could be wrong. Okay, I don't think I am. I think everything I said here is purposeful. I think it is correct and it is for the benefit of the people I'm teaching. But I could be wrong. And so what you want to do is after going through these studies is make sure that you check on what I've said and do that with any Bible study you attend. Because you are responsible ultimately for your theology. But that is uh, what I recommend in this life application. Precision of thought is required in order to keep from being duped into bad theology. Okay? Please take time to read more commentaries on this verse. And all you have to do, if you want to find more commentaries on this verse, is just go to your computer, which I know you're going to be on later today and tomorrow, and then just type in Ephesians 2 verse 8 commentary. And you're going to get 10,000 different commentaries read some of them. That's what I recommend, and that will help you to make sure that you're not being duped by Charlie Garrett, okay? Verse 2, 9. I'm going to read 2, 8, and 9 together because they are one train of thought. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Yes. Okay, so, yes. All those commentaries tend to do so. Oh, yes, they can. This list that you narrowed down, right? And a few that are there, like Swindoll. Oh, ab ab that's right. I agree. Now, it, Burke will send out other commentaries. He'll send out uh, on different things, not on what I'm talking about here. But Burke will do commentaries on the Expositor's New Testament, Chuck Swindoll, um, John Butler, John Butler, and yeah, Linsky. Who? Linsky. Linsky. I don't remember he him. He doesn't, if you'd like him. Okay, well, if you want a couple more good commentators, um, what you can do is email me, and I can give you the list that Burke just gave. And I can also give you the link to the uh, people that I just gave. Now, he's right. You shouldn't just go reading any commentaries, because there are a lot of really crummy commentaries out there. There are a lot of them. And you don't want to get into bad theology by saying, well, I'm going to check this. And that. Now, I do do that with Cambridge. Cambridge and their Old Testament commentaries is terrible. They tear the Bible apart. but they also are very good about analyzing the Hebrew in a way that nobody else does. And so I will read their commentaries just to get those mechanical aspects, which have actually led to a lot of great insights, but leave their commentaries, especially on the Old Testament alone. Boy, they are so liberal. Let me read something to you that some annoying person just sent me. Um, somebody sitting right over there. Um, the man who refused to pardon in, uh, let's see here, imagine being convicted of a crime. Oh, this is a long thing. How long is this? Oh my gosh, it's 10 pages long. Uh, uh, well, it's pretty long. Okay, um, what does it say? 1890. Oh, Andrew Jackson. It was a J. I knew it was. Um, 1892, these guys did this. They did this. Um, let's see here. 20 years for his crimes. Incredibly, he refused the pardon. An official report said uh, Wilson chose to waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, another J with an M, uh, wrote, A pardon is an act of grace pre proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. 
It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. Sounds like the Bible to me. You know, if you think of how this nation was set up and the way that we do things and some of the judgments that have been rendered, that's the way the Bible reads right there. I'm offering you this gift and it is not going to be forced on you. You can turn it down and I'm not going to force my will on you so much for Calvinism. Okay. Thank you for that, annoying person. Um, no, it, no, it's much longer. I just, I just scanned it with my eyes to save you all of the tedium and doldrums. That it's, it's at least it just, goes into the Bible aspect. Oh, it, she said it even talks. Oh yes, listen to this. The Bible. Listen, I better read this. This is down at the bottom, way below the, uh, way below John Marshall's rendering. Listen to this. The Bible plainly teaches we are all sinners, people who have repeatedly broken God's laws. For instance, Romans three twenty three says we all have, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Another verse says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What about the penalty of sin? And it goes on and it quotes Romans 6.23. It quotes Ezekiel 18.4, 2 Peter 3.9. It goes on and on down at the bottom, John 3.18. And so it, and then gives more verses down at the bottom. Anyway, the point is that the Bible is, you know, you can see how this guy was thinking just the way the Bible presents salvation. So anyway, it is. It's at least 10. Maybe it's 150 pages. It's very long. I just cut out the nonsense to give you the short of it so we could get back to the Bible. Anyway, yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's see here. We're in verse 2-9 now. In the Old Testament, the focus for the people of Israel was to be the glory of God. And that should be our focus today too, by the way, the glory of God. This is consistently seen from the very beginning all the way through the time of the law. The people were to glory in the Lord and in him alone. I'm going to take you to the book of Jeremiah, and I'm going to read you something that he wrote. It says there, and uh, hang on one second here, Jeremiah. Ooh, i got to go back further, don't I? I'm going forward instead of back. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 says, oh, let, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Not let let excuse me, not let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So important to the Lord is this precept that he further stated this in the book of Isaiah. Let me take you there. I know already what he says, but I'm going to go you there anyway. It's a verse that I love to quote in sermons, especially uh, doctrine sermons, but it is in Isaiah. Let's see here. Give me a second. Okay, you guys are going to, okay. Now one sec here. Isaiah 42 and verse 8. Yes, I knew it. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Okay, so much for Jesus being the Son of God, the divine Son of God, right? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses want to tell you. My glory I will not give to another. And what does it say in John 1.14? For we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't ever listen to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't know what they're talking about. I tell them when they come to the door, what you need to do is stop listening to these people that are telling you what they're telling you and pick up the Bible and read it and go to the book of Isaiah. 
And I want you to take every time that the Lord says something about himself, just write it down, make a list. My glory I will not give to another. I am the Redeemer. I am your Savior. He goes on and on with term after term after term after term. I am the first and the last, okay? I am the one who reads hearts and minds. And guess what? Every single one of them you are going to find ascribed to Jesus or by Jesus of himself in the New Testament. I can't think of any that you won't find that way. It goes on and on and on. Even adult, a person that doesn't know anything, if you told him, this is what this says and this is what this says, will say, yes, I get that. Jesus is God. You have to have that precept trained out of you. That's all there is to it because it is as clear as it can be. My glory I will not give to another. Oh, yeah, the Westminster Catechism. That's the, you know, that was written by a really young guy. He was like 19 years old or something, and he wrote that. And he, the first precept that he put in there was, uh, the, what, is what is the chief end of man? The, yeah, yeah, something like that, to glorify God and to serve him forever. I mean, the first precept in the Westminster Catechism. Anyway, okay, so Paul directly equates our salvation with this same precept. Verse 9 is given to explain the words of verse 8. Let me read them again so that you can see this. 2, 9, uh, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The glory of God is what is on display here. The glory of God. And he is not going to give his glory to another, not even to you when you call on him. He's done everything. All you did was believe, okay? So he equates that to us in verse 9, based on verse 8. There can be no boasting before the Lord in that which he alone has accomplished. This brings in the obvious and often argued point concerning the exercising of faith. Is free will a work? Does the free will choice of calling on Christ bring us to a point where we can boast before him? That's the question. And as I said, people love to make these things up and to argue these stupid things. This was dealt with in verse 8, and the answer is no. In fact, it is just the opposite. We are already in the sea. We are already without hope. The waters are already surrounding us. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. If somebody throws out a rope to you from the boat and says, grab the rope or you're going to die. And you say, I grabbed the rope and I'm working to save myself. <laughs> Who would do that? You'd grab the rope because it's your only means of being saved. Okay. Nobody would do that. Nobody in their right mind would say, I'm working my way out of this, this pit. No, you're saving, you're being saved because somebody sent you a rope. And guess what? If he lets go of that rope, you're not going to be saved. Okay. It has nothing to do with you except you're just holding on. And that's what your faith is. It's a holding on. It's actually just an asking, I guess. It's, it's a reception, whatever. It's not a work, okay? We're already in the sea. We're already without hope. The waters already surround us. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. However, God provides a way out. Is it wrong to choose that avenue? Or should we ignorantly say, I will deprive God of his glory if I reach out my hand and receive his salvation? There's no other hand. There is no other salvation. If God asks us to receive his offer, it is not a work to do so. But in this same sea are all others of the human race. They would rather stay in the depravity of sin 
and so choose not to respond to the offer. Their refusal is no more of a work than our acceptance. They're not working to go to hell. They're already going there. And our acceptance is no more of a work than their de denial of it. Our only God will receive the glory for the salvation or the just condemnation. This line of thought is beautifully reflected in the 115th Psalm. So please take time to read that Psalm today and to contemplate what the writer is telling us. The Lord chose Israel, but Israel had to respond individually as to whether they would comply with the Lord's directives or not. The Lord has chosen a church and each of us has a choice to do the same. Let me go ahead and take you there because we're doing a Bible study instead of you reading my commentary. So I'm going to take you to Psalm 115. And let's see here. Oh, good. This Oh, it's just beautiful. It's, it's just wonderful. This is exactly what we need to hear. Come here. I'm going to let you read this to the people. You've got a prettier voice than I do. Sit down there so they can see you. And you read Psalm 115 to the people. It's big. So you don't need your glasses. Okay? I don't need my glasses yeah. anyway. Read that to the people. <laughs> Your chair's too high there. Yeah, don't don't let it fall over fall on you. Over. Not to us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. I love that one. Okay, see? Not... Yeah. <laughs> He's easier on the eyes than I am. That's for he sure. He included the Gentiles in 11 and 13. That's right. Inclu so it was, wasn't just the house of Israel. That's right. The, the Gentiles are included as well. It was us. Yeah. Okay, so we have Psalm 115. In Romans 3, 27 and 28, Paul makes a clear and concise distinction between faith and deeds of the law. Faith is not reckoned as a deed. If you don't understand that, go back and watch those verses and you'll see where I explain that to you. It is reckoned as a response to Christ's work. To teach others that they do not need to receive Jesus Christ is to simply lead them to hell on that great day of judgment. Okay, I know I beat this to death over two verses, but it is one of those things that there are people that actually argue this. There are people that will actually argue this type of theology, and you need to be prepared for it. It is not a work. Faith is not a work. You must believe, and if you do not believe, 
then you are not saved, okay? That's, God has made the offer. He's given you the conditions. Follow it, okay? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's absolute. And that's why we send missionaries all over the world. And that's why we have Bible studies and all of these things is so that people can, if, you know, how many people have sat in churches all their lives? I've heard this from a lot of people. And they turn on a video and they say, you know, I never need, never knew that I needed to receive Jesus. I just went to church and thought I was a good Christian and that was it. They had no idea the simple gospel. They had never heard it. You know, going to the Episcopal Church, they never told us that, ever. Growing up, I was in the Episcopal Church and I told people all the time in Japan and Malaysia, I'm a Christian. I had no idea that you needed to receive Christ, that you needed to believe the gospel because they never gave the gospel. I couldn't have told you anything about it. It's time to sit up and say the Nicene Creed. It's time to do this and time to, and you know, you, it's just rote. That's all it is. There's nothing of the heart there. And Catholics tell me that all the time. You know, I had all the theology. I just didn't know to move it down to here. I, whatever. Anyway. It's what? John 1, 12. That's right. As many as receive him have become the children of God. Exactly right. Life application. The, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This way others can hear and respond. Okay. Verse 210. Psalm 107.2? Uh, I, I don't know. Yes, Psalm 107.2. Okay. Psalm 107.2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Okay, verse 210 is what we're in. Yeah, that, um, was, that was my sister's first proclamation to her being saved, was that verse. Let the redeemed of the, the Lord, Lord say so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good deal. <laughs> All right, verse uh, 210. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From the thought of being saved by grace and not of works, thus excluding any boasting on our part, Paul notes that we are his, meaning God's workmanship. The word his is emphatic, showing that it is solely a work of God. He has created us, he has redeemed us, and he has orchestrated his plan, which includes us. All of this was done apart from our participation. The Greek reads, of him, indeed, we are workmanship. The word translated as workmanship is poema. It is found only here and in Romans 1 verse 20. Would you please stop that, please? There it refers to that which God has made in the physical creation. The word means just that, a thing made, a work, a workmanship. In this, we can see that our works are excluded in the process of salvation. Instead, it is the work of God which saves. The word poema eventually came to, down to us in the form of the word poem. This doesn't mean that we are God's poem. A lot of, I've heard preachers say this many times. But just as a poem is formed by a poet, so we are formed into that which God designs. We are the work of his intelligence, having been formed by his hands. We, his work, have been created in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the means by which God has accomplished this. It is through faith in his work that we can become a part of this new creation. Paul speaks specifically of us as a new creation or creature several times in his epistles. He does this in, uh, let's see here, where was I? Several times in his epistles, such as in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, and again in verse 15 of Ephesians 2. 
God did the work through Christ for the purpose of accomplishing our own good works. That's Paul's words, our own good works. This then reiterates the thought of verses 8 and 9. Our works are not that which come before, but rather they are the consequence of what God has done. In our receiving of Christ, we are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. But it is with the expectation of accomplishing good works. I'll read that again. In our receiving of Christ, we are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. The moment we believe, and this is where people get, you know, they go to the book of James and they start citing James 2.24 and other things. And they say that uh, works naturally stems from salvation. And if you don't have works, then you're not saved. I've heard that 10,000 times in my life. Okay, that's classic Reformed theology. Help me find that in the gospel, please. You are saved by faith in Christ. That is all you're saved by. And the moment that you believe that gospel message, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Works coming naturally is not found anywhere in Scripture. If people do works to please God, if they live lives to please God, that's very nice. But Peter says that there are people that do not follow the process that he recommends in 2 Peter 1, and they get down to verse 9, and it says, for a person such as this is, uh, how do, let me read it to you so that I don't misquote it. It says there in 2 Peter 1, uh, I can take you right there. Uh, John, Jude. Oh, you've got to go the other way. Peter's before John. I knew that, too. I don't know why I was doing that. Sorry about that. Okay. A little distracted here. Okay. 2 Peter 1, and you go down to verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed of his old sins. He doesn't even know he was saved. So how can you do good works if you don't even know that you're saved? Okay, and there are a lot of people like this that have been led to Christ, and then the rest of their life they have no discipleship, they never were taken into a good church or anything like that. And I don't care if you go out to Papua New Guinea and you happen to speak the local language and you speak to somebody on the side of the palm tree and you say, Tell him about Jesus, and he receives Jesus. And he says, I believe that. And then you leave or you die the next day, and he gets no more discipleship all the rest of his life. You tell me what good works he can do for God. What can he do? can't do anything because he doesn't have any doctrine at all. He's got no Bible to tell him what to do. All he knows is that he was saved by Jesus. And eventually even that knowledge goes away because he didn't have any way of building upon it. Okay. Good works does not flow naturally from salvation. Good works should flow from salvation, but they do not flow naturally from salvation. It's something that we have to actually work at. So when people tell you, oh, I got it right here. I didn't even know that I said James 2.24, but it's down a little bit and we'll get there in a little while. Okay, it's right there. Okay, it brings out the, oh, okay. let me read this paragraph again. This then reiterates the thought of verses 8 and 9. Our works are not that which come before, but rather they, come, they are the consequence of what God has done. Our good works don't come before salvation. They are to be the consequence of what God has done. Okay, in our receiving of Christ, we are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation, but it is with the expectation of accomplishing good works. Not a natural inclination for good works, but it is an expectation of that. This is Paul's words, by the way, going on. This brings in an obvious question, however. What works? Because when people say that good works stem naturally from salvation, or you don't have works and therefore you're not saved, which you hear all the time. I've heard this for years and years and years, people saying things like that. You tell me what works. 
just ask them the question, well, if works are what are expected of me, what works? Okay? What works? What is it that we are expected to do? And I use this example all the time because it's so obvious. Are we to help little old ladies across the road? Don't the unregenerate also do that? What works are required in order for us to fulfill this plan of God that we have been created for? In short, the answer is that whatever we do by faith, by faith, which is good and acceptable after salvation, is a good work counted for righteousness. Does anybody know where that's recorded explicitly? Genesis. I'm talking about the works of faith that are explained again and again and again. It's in the book of Hebrews, and it begins with chapter 1 and it ends with the other one. <laughs> Hebrews 11, right? The Hall of Fame of Faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, all of these people. It tells what they did. And I'm going to use... Was that not Cain's problem? It was not... Yeah, Cain... Cain his offering was not acceptable. What does it say about Abel's that made it acceptable? By faith, Abel. By faith, Abel. It's not the type of offering because the type of offering that Cain gave is a type of offering that's mandated in the book of Leviticus before the Lord. So it can't be the type of offering. It has to be, as it says, by faith, Abel presented a more acceptable offering than Cain. Cain, did, his offering did not accompany, was not accompanied by faith. That's what it is right there. Okay, so it says, um, uh, what works? That's the question you want to ask people when they say, well, you're, you're not doing any works and so you can't be saved. Because I know people, well, I won't get into it. Okay, apart from Christ, the greatest and most noble deeds are counted as filthy rags. It is only through being in Christ that a deed is made acceptable before God. The very same deeds as the unregenerate are made acceptable, they are sanctified by being in Christ as long as they are deeds of faith. This is further explained in Hebrews 11, using one example after another by showing us that it is faith which pleases God. This further explains the very difficult and often misunderstood passage in James 2, especially James 2.24, which says that man is justified by works and not by faith only. It is deeds of faith which justify us, not deeds in and of themselves. And that's the problem with Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics will say that James 2.24 says that you need to have works and that is what brings about your salvation. They take James and they say that, but they never tell you anything about the process of salvation, which is by faith. And therefore, the deeds that are acceptable before God are by faith. Am I going to talk about this here? Let me, before I go on, okay, I'm going to do it right now, just so you understand this. I, I do this from time to time, and I'm going to do it right now, because all I did was touch on James 2.24, but I'm going to take you there, and I'm going to read you what James says, because James makes a point that the Roman Catholics miss. Okay, it says here in James 2, and I'm just picking on the Catholics because the Anglicans do this, the Reformed theology does as well. Good works stem naturally from faith, and if you don't have good works, then you're probably not saved. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It says that if you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, you are saved. That's the gospel. To add to it is not a gospel. So here's what it says in James. It says, James um, uh, I'm going to start back at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. So he's making a point. Well, you have faith, so what? What are you doing about it? 
Okay, which is what Peter's trying to tell you as well. If you don't do these things, then you get blind and you eventually forget that you're saved. So he's making a point. We'll read it again. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, here's, here's the examples that he gives. Now, listen until the end of the chapter and try to think of the, the point that he is making, okay? He uses first Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Okay, so he's saying that Abraham is justified by works when he offered his son on the altar. Now, here's a question. When was Abraham declared righteous? What chapter? 15. Genesis 15.6. When was Isaac offered on the altar? 22. Chapter 22 of Genesis. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go further with this, but I'm, getting, I'm asking you this now so that you can see this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son on the altar? He was already declared righteous by God. So it can't be that he was saved again after being saved the first time. Okay. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, which is what is the expectation, but it is not the necessary result of salvation, okay? And by works, faith was made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He just cited Genesis 15, 6, after citing Genesis 22. He said that he was saved in Genesis 15, 6, so Genesis 22 can't have any bearing on the fact that he was saved. Okay, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. We'll get to that when we get to James. I'm not going to talk about that part of it right now. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So you've got Abraham and you've got Rahab the harlot. Okay, both of them are examples of justification by works, according to James, you would think. Okay, now here's a question for you. This is a tough one. Does the book of Hebrews come before or after James? It comes before James. So I'm going to take you back to Hebrews, and we talked about it. This Hebrews what chapter? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 says, I'm going to take you to verse 8. Well, I'm going to take you down a little further. Verse 17, by faith, by faith, that is the standard. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. By faith, Abraham. And then it goes down in verse, uh, let's see, Red Sea, okay, 31. By faith, the harlot Rahav did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. He, even, he said the same thing he said, she received the spies. So what is it that made their works acceptable? Faith. The faith precedes the work. They're not justified by works in the sense that Paul is speaking of. It is by works of faith. And the faith is what saved them in the first place. If somebody doesn't understand that, just tell him that Hebrews comes before James and everything comes back to the word faith, 
okay? And we'll get to that when we get to James. It won't be long. It'll be a couple more weeks at the most, and we'll be done with all this, and we'll be into James. Okay, but if you don't want to wait, just go read the James commentary. It's right online. Just go to the Superior Word, look to uh, PDFs, and then under the PDFs, you can look at anything I've ever done. It's all there. And from there, just click on James and go down to James 2 and just read the whole thing until you're bleary-eyed. But you'll see that everything comes back to faith. It is You are not saved by works in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so I'll read this again and we'll go on. This further explains why the very difficult and often misunderstood passage in James 2, especially James 2.24, which says that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, it is deeds of faith which justify us, not deeds in and of themselves. Any deed not of faith is not acceptable for credit. Therefore, it is ultimately faith which justifies the man. All right, everybody see that? You can be unsaved and you can be saved and do exactly the same thing. The unsaved has no faith and therefore his work means nothing. But the saved person says, I have faith in Christ and I'm going to do this thing. It is counted as acceptable, not because the person is acceptable, other than the person is in Christ, and Christ is acceptable to the Father. And because he is in Christ, his work is now acceptable to God. Everybody see that? It comes back to faith. Everything comes back to faith. You got something on your mind, Bert? Yes. You said a while ago the works of faith. Right. Okay, can you... I just did. I just explained I that. You just covered it just yes. now. Works must be of faith. In other words, if I do something and I'm not doing it in faith in Christ, I'm not going to get any reward for it. That's why we have what are called rewards and losses. Because the things that I do that I shouldn't be doing are not works of faith, right? right. They're works that are not of faith. They're still works. Everything I do in my life is a work. Everything. Everything I do is a work. And I may go do something at my house that I shouldn't do. And that's not a work of faith, and therefore I'm going to lose rewards. But can't you also do something that could be a work of faith, but I want to do it to be seen to get something praised? Well, what is your motivation? Because that's right. Exactly. It's so the motivation. Loss, right? That's a loss because the motivation, I wouldn't even call that a work of faith because you're, you're looking to exalt yourself. You're looking right. to glorify yourself and not God. Right, but what I'm saying would be the differentiation. And the Lord will read the heart. Good. Yeah, the That's Lord right. will read the heart, and he is going to reward us according to every man's deeds, and our deeds must be deeds of faith. Everything comes back to faith, because that's all we have to stand on. We have nothing else to present before God. Paul's he already said that. that in John, this is the work that you should do. That's what he just said, John 626. Oh, Nine twenty. Well, six twenty nine. Thank you, John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that you believe in the one whom He sent. Yeah. That's correct, John six twenty nine. So that that everything comes back to faith, and it is if it is not of faith, it is. Paul says it. If it is anything that is not of faith, is sin. That's right. Therefore, if it's not of faith, then it's sin, and therefore you will get no reward for it. You see that everything comes back to faith. Everything comes back to faith. Faith cannot be a work in and of itself, but the work can be a work of faith. Right? 1 Corinthians 14.23, I believe that is. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14.23, he says. Okay, this is then reflected in the final words of the verse, which have been created. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, that's Paul's words. 
These words, again, show us the synergistic, which means working together. God is doing something, and we are responding and working together with God. The synergistic relationship between God's work in Christ and our faith. I'll take you to Philippians chapter 3, and you'll see that. Philippians 3, and then we're going to go to verse 12, and he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And then, oh yeah, he, he, Burke wants me to go on. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, we are told in passages both passages, the one we're looking at and in Philippians, that it is God who works, and yet we are expected to work. In God's plan, there is his predestination of the matter, and yet man's free will is also highlighted. That free will is man's faith, both for salvation and for deeds which follow salvation, okay? And yes, they follow salvation. Faith is never considered a work but rather a necessary part of the process. God prepares the salvation. Man receives the salvation by faith. God prepares the workmanship. Man walks according to God's preparation. On both sides of the process, there is a synergism, which is evident. It is that, it is that faith is a necessary requirement of pleasing God. It doesn't matter if it's faith in the initial act, Christ died for my sins, and I believe it, that pleases God. And if I think I want to do something, I want to do something to help this person, and it's in the name of Christ, and it's because of faith in Christ, then it is an act of faith that pleases God. And if it's not something that you're doing that is of faith in Christ, then it is unpleasing to him, because if anything that is not of faith is sin. Everything in your life should be geared towards what you are doing for God in Christ. And, you know, it's easy to say that, and I'm sit here and think as I'm giving these studies week after week, I'm the most hypocritical person in the world because I think the worst thoughts in my mind, the things that I think are just, you know, ah, and I think, how could the Lord even look at me? You know, I'm, I'm studying for the prophecy updates and I'm reading articles and the things that go through my mind when I see what's going on in the world, you wouldn't want to be in the, inside my head, right? And the thoughts that go through your mind in the middle of the night and you think, where did that come from? I, I it, it just is life, you know, but Gear your life towards Christ. Just keep gearing your life towards Christ because everything else is there to take the joy away from you. It's to misdirect you from that. Everything comes down to you and your relationship with the Lord. And it's all based on faith because we have not seen the Lord. All we have is this word that tells us that Christ has done these things for us. It is faith. Yes. Oh, okay. Life application. What more could we give to God than to live holy lives of faith? Heaven is not the purpose of our salvation. Holiness is. And one cannot be holy without exercising faith in that which God has revealed, both for us and for us to do. And I would say that one other purpose, which is even above our holiness, is the glory of God. But we cannot give God glory unless we are holy. Okay? But that is the purpose of our salvation. Heaven is a result of it. It's not the purpose of it. It's what we get because we have been glorified by God. But it's not the purpose of it. You know, we were in paradise and we're the ones that blew it and were kicked out of there. Okay, so that can't be the end result. 
the end result is that we are holy and living the lives that they didn't live when they were living in that paradise. Okay? That's what we need to consider is that Christ has paved the way for us. He's made it possible for us to do these things, and that's what we need to do. Let me see if we have time. We've got... Workmanship in this beginning of the verse. What's that? We are his workmanship. Yes. Workmanship means his... uh, Poema. The... uh, Masterpiece. That's right. The Masterpiece. Ma- that's right. That's what it is. It's a workman building something. Yeah, he, and God is making like Absolutely that's right. What, uh, and that goes a masterpiece, or it goes with the verse that says that, you know, uh, like silver refined seven times. The idea is that we're being purified so much that when the Lord looks at us, all he sees is his own reflection. He doesn't see us anymore. That's what we are to be doing. And we are a workmanship, and we should be working with him to make that workmanship as best as we can. Now, someday we're going to be glorified and it's just going to happen. But in the meantime, we should be at least attempting to live that life. I do not know if we have time to do one more because we've got eight more minutes. Um, let's see. This is, give me one second here. We're going to try. We'll try to get verse 211 done. Um, Paul gathers, uh, I've got to read the verse first. Okay, let's see here. There, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. I, you know, I better not get into this because next week we're going to, this is like the beginning of a thought and yes. it's going to take us down through verse 13. So I don't want to rush through 11. Um, we're going to stop now instead of doing that because it's a thought that has to be taken with the next verse. So I apologize for that. I thought we could, but it would not be appropriate to do that. So we're going to go ahead and stop eight minutes early and have a prayer. And uh, thank you for reading that, Jody. That was a very good job. Very clear. You've obviously done that before once or twice in your life. Okay. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence, and we uh, just praise you for your goodness and your glory to us. And it is so wonderful to uh, share in your word and to know that it is a word, even though it's a word that we must accept by faith, it is a word that is so, so reliable. It's so precise. It's so beautifully uh, constructed and so beautifully designed that it cannot be anything but your hand that is in there. So even though faith is what saves us, and even though it takes faith to accept this word, you don't make it hard for us to do so. It is just a masterpiece if we're just willing to open it up and read it. So we thank you for it. And Lord, um, I'd like to say a special prayer of thanks for all of the people that uh, uh, help the superior word that uh, monitor these particular videos when they're live streaming. The gentlemen that do these things are just so wonderful, and I don't thank them enough. And uh, so I'd like to do that now in your presence, thanking you for their efforts to do this. And Lord, we just ask that you bless our steps in the days ahead until we can come into your presence again to worship you on Sunday. And I pray that everybody will be safe and happy and content until then. And may you be glorified in our lives. And may it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me back this thing up here. Uh, 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 A break.